Okay, attention please, everybody. Uh, heads up and come on back in if you're outside. All right, praise the Lord. Uh, yeah, so we have, uh, let me just give a little plug to our hospitality ministry. Uh, you know, the Lord often sat and ate together with other people. It was part of what drew them together in fellowship. So we wholeheartedly endorse that uh, idea. So we try to provide, you know, a good assortment of things out there. And uh, so please don't leave without uh, taking advantage of that for yourselves. Uh, welcome to church, everybody, again. Anybody streaming online, welcome to you. Every so often, I have Andrew come on up. Andrew, you can come on up, please. Um, and just to give us uh, an update on some of the missionary work that we're connected to or familiar with. So he will do that this morning. 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 Hi. Um, so we're good, right? The world is in great shape. Nobody's praying, right? We don't really need to pray for any of the countries or anything going on in the world. We're good, right? No, I'm laying it on pretty thick. I really hope you guys are, are feeling the sarcasm. Um, so a couple things going on around the world. So usually what I like to do um, on, on a, a missions focus on Sunday morning is to, to, number one, draw your attention to the map in the back. There's a map on the wall right near where the coffee is. Um, every once in a while, I'll change those prayer points. Um, to specific prayer points that maybe aren't as headline in the news. Some of them sometimes are, but some of them aren't as headline in the news, but are still huge things going on. Anybody know what's going on in Serbia? Serbia. Okay, right? So there's stuff that's going on around the world that isn't just Afghanistan, which, yes, needs our prayers, attention, and focus, but there's a lot of stuff and as Christians, I think it's so easy for us to just get so, like, number one, delusional and being like, you know, well, you know, it's all going to burn. It doesn't matter anyway, right? We're good. Just keep on trucking and worshiping Jesus. Well, Jesus still cares about those people, and he cares about what's going on in this, this world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so when, when I try to look into news headlines, I try to have a, that mentality to be like, I need to pray. You know, how does prayer work? I don't really know, but it works, right? Like, I don't really know, like, the exact details of, like, why would God listen to me about a nation over the ocean? But he does. The fact of the matter is we know what Scripture says. So it's our responsibility as Christians to pray. So we got to pray. So there's points on the map in the back. I encourage you guys to take a look at the points and just see what's going on and, and pray as the Lord would lead you, whether that's for the individual, whether that's for the nation, whether it's for the government. I mean, there's just, there's so many options for us to pray for, guys. There's no reason that we shouldn't be able to take that time and focus in and be like, look, let's have more of a global perspective and not just what one media outlet is trying to ram down our throat. Let's have a global perspective so that we as Christians can care for and pray for nations because they need it. Our earth needs it. We need Jesus. That's the only way things are going to change is Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you guys, if you don't already have a habit of, of praying outside of what you're involved with, try it out. This week, just grab one of those prayer points in your mind, maybe write a little note in your, in your, in your Bible on the bulletin or something like that, and just pray this week for that. Try to read up on the news. It's a little snippet that I present. Get more detail so that you could pray really specifically. Um, so that's kind of a push to, to pray for the world. Pray for what's going on. And not just general, like, sit down and, oh, Lord, bless the world. <laughs> pray specifically. We have media outlets. Like, pray. Anyway, okay, I'll stop there. Um, so our missionaries are doing great. People we support and love. Uh, Renovation House is doing fantastic. Continue praying for Renovation House. They are local. If you guys are looking for, for volunteer opportunities or things to get involved with locally, Renovation House is about a 30-minute drive south. So just tap me on the shoulder, say, hey, what, what's going on? It's, a, it's a, an amazing rehabilitation center. Really, really cool. They do awesome work, incredible success rate. Um, also, uh, Lonnie's doing good. Uh, he is not sitting around twiddling his thumbs as he's come back from the Middle East. Uh, he's serving. He's getting involved, which I love seeing. 
you know, COVID has kind of thrown a wrench into the works for a lot of missions work around the world. And Lonnie has returned to the States and he is getting involved in his high school in his area. So be praying for Lonnie. Um, also, uh, the um, uh, Mana and Nezreen, I, Martins, I could not remember their last name. The Martins, uh, overseas in the Middle East, be praying for them. The Lord is moving. It is amazing the work that the Lord is doing for Man and Nezreen. If you don't get their updates, they have prayer cards outside. Shoot them an email, and you'll get their updates. Uh, for, for security purposes, we don't talk a lot about the details on Sunday morning. Um, I will talk to you privately if you're interested in more information um, after church, or you can sign up for their, their newsletter directly, and then you'll get all the information from them. Mon is a talker, so you will not be in need of more information. You will know everything going on that they're, that they're going through and walking in. So be praying for Mana and Nazreen as well. Um, guys, any questions or anything? I mean, missions-wise, international, uh, involvement opportunities, short-term outreaches, just come and talk to me. Talk to Pastor Scott. Talk to Andy. You know, the, the Lord is moving. Um, whether or not COVID is changing and continues and all, all the stuff going on, the world still needs Jesus. And we as the church can't sit back and just let other things dictate how we preach the gospel. So I encourage you guys, if you're wrestling or struggling, ideas, whatever, come and talk to us. Come and tap, tap us on the shoulder. We'd love to just throw out some possibilities or just pray with you. Okay, but for this morning, let's just go ahead and close this in prayer. Um, again, pray, guys. Pray, pray, pray. Pray for the world specifically. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your care, your concern for each nation, each individual on this planet. You care for them. The Bible says that uh, you desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we thank you for your heart for humanity for each individual. And Lord, we know there's so many things going on. Afghanistan, Haiti, our nation. God, there's, there's so many things. Serbia, China, India. God, there, we just pray in Jesus' name that you would fill these lands with your Holy Spirit. We stand uh, us alongside the, the brothers and sisters in Christ that are around the world in these nations. God, support them. Be the author and the lifter of their heads. I pray that you would give them a boldness to stand and preach the gospel, to serve others in their communities, even as they are in need. Father, we thank you so much for your heart. I pray, God, that this week you would show us just another little glimpse into how much you care for these individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, anybody need a communion cup? Everybody good? Last call? <laughs> uh, actually, there might be some. Uh, Andrew, if you, yeah, thank you. Okay, open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. We continue our Bible study through the book of Colossians. Uh, the theme of Paul's letter to this small church in Turkey uh, so many years ago is the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the theme, overall, overarching message that Paul has to this church in Colossae, the glory of Jesus Christ, his beauty, his majesty, his power, his supremacy, everything that is awesome about Jesus, who is God. And... Um, I just want to remind you that as word came back to Paul from his friend about the difficulties that were going on in Colossae, uh, Paul, in response, wrote this letter, okay? But I just want to be clear that this is more than just a letter, <laughs> okay? Paul was inspired by God to write the words that we're reading today. Okay, so yes, they were this interesting combination of Paul's intellect and his education and his background and his experience and his own faith and using the vocabulary that he had at that time. But we know that the Bible teaches us that what he put on paper was actually God inspiring him to write the message that we need to hear. So, 
That's what we're reading. This is more than just an interesting little note from the apostle to a church. It's actually the words of God, and it's revealing his directives and his heart, and it gives great authority to what we're reading this morning. So we're at this part in this letter that he wrote. We went from a really beautiful uh, lifting up of the glory of Jesus, primarily in chapter 1, and then Paul addressed the difficulties that they were experiencing, which were predominantly challenges to Christianity from a philosophical perspective, from a religious perspective, even a sort of pseudoscience perspective, because there was people that were not Christians that were uh, very persuasive and influential, and some of the Christians were beginning to doubt the origin of life and the meaning of life, because these people who were fairly elite and a small group that sort of held on to this deeper knowledge, kind of a mystic sort of a thing, and they were having a deep influence, and people were beginning to question. So Paul's friend Epaphras, who lived in Colossae, returned and found Paul in a Roman prison in the city of Rome, and as a response, Paul gives this letter. And it's very beautiful, because he just lifts up Jesus, and he affirms them and encourages them. No, 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 no. You know God through Jesus Christ. You have everything that is sufficient for answers to all your questions. Seek him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Stay in fellowship with one another. You don't need to get angry and and start arguing with your friends. They're just trying to figure out life for themselves. Actually, preach the gospel to them. And so Paul, chapter 3, he gets into the practical aspect of that. So, So we move from theology, now puts feet on it. And it really takes place in the way that we live. So we're here in chapter 3, and I'll pick it up at verse 22, where it says, Bond servants, I read from the New King James, bond servants, it might more accurately just say slaves. Now I know that just by virtue of saying that, it brings a whole lot of baggage and tension into the room. We're going to talk about that briefly. But he says, slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. He who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality or favoritism. Masters, give your slaves what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So uh, these words from Paul to this church, uh, just a couple observations that make you aware of that you can observe for yourselves, but I bring it to your attention. Um, Paul gets into uh, the glory of Jesus, into the everyday practical side of, like, marriage. He has a word for wives and for husbands. Then he talks about family, children, and fathers or parents. Now he talks to the everyday aspect of slaves and masters. Isn't it interesting? He has more to say to the slave than he has even to the child or the husband or the wife or the parents. Some people speculate it's because the demographic of the church was made up of predominantly slaves. Could very well be. Another observation that I, it's right there, very clear, just to point out to you that Paul makes explicit reference to God in verse 22 and to the Lord, which would be Jesus, two times in verse, or sorry, once in verse 23 and then twice in verse 24. And then to the masters or the slave owners, he speaks of them that you have a master in heaven, a very direct uh, statement about, again, God the Father and Jesus Christ. So we're talking about uh, Christians who are slaves and slave owners. 
And uh, so I want to just talk about that for a moment, okay? Uh, a word about slavery. Obviously, uh, this, as I said, it comes with a lot of baggage and stirs up very strong passions and tensions as it should. Let me say right from the outset that if you have in your mind a black person who is owned by a white person, that is not correct. That is American slavery, perhaps the worst kind of slavery that ever existed in the history of humankind. But this was not that. Okay? This was actually a bit more humane, quite a bit more humane, than the terrible blot on our history here in America. So I just want to speak briefly and honestly about the Bible's stance on slavery. And then we'll develop more of a practical instruction for ourselves in our everyday work life. Hence the title of the message, The Glory of God at Work. Okay, so uh, it is true that, uh, be very honest, it's very true that nowhere in the scriptures does the Bible condemn or condone slavery. Condone means to trivialize, make it not important or acceptable. The Bible does not do that. Therefore, as you are probably very aware, the scriptures come under intense criticism and ridicule. Uh, atheist and skeptic Sam Harris said this, the Bible got the easiest moral question that humanity has ever faced wrong, slavery. He therefore reasons, what are the odds that the Bible got something as complicated as human sexuality wrong? Answer, 100%. I just want to say that that just reveals Sam Harris's ignorance of God in his true nature and of the Word of God, because that's just not true. And I hope to instill a little bit of confidence in you. If you have doubts about that yourself, I understand that. It is troubling to read passages, Old and New Testament, such as this. But don't ever mistake, brothers and sisters, God's tolerance for his acceptance. Okay? We know from Old Testament that polygamy was practiced by some of his chief men, David, whose name is mentioned more in the Bible, I think, than any other man other than Jesus. Right? David. And, of course, his son Solomon had multiple wives. Nowhere in the scripture is he rebuked for that. God's tolerance does not mean his acceptance. Divorce, for that matter, is not accepted by God. In fact, the scripture says God hates divorce, but he does tolerate it and he regulates it with words in the Old Testament. Along those lines of thinking, let me just quote from uh, Kevin DeYoung, who says this, the bottom line is the Bible, without commending slavery to us, regulated the institution of slavery where it existed. He goes on, Imagine if Paul had written to families today with stepchildren as a result of divorce and remarriage. And he were to write, like, say, for example, verses 20 and 21, stepchildren, obey your stepparents in all things, and so on. Imagine if Paul were to write that. If that's what Paul wrote, we would know how children and stepdads should relate to each other, but we wouldn't have any warrant for thinking that Paul was in favor of divorce and remarriage. We would realize he's not commenting one way or another on the situation. He is simply regulating an arrangement that already exists and has no signs of going away. Even if the existence of the arrangement was not a part of God's good design from the beginning. That's a little bit of a mouthful, but I'm trying to just give you some understanding of what the scripture says and doesn't say. I think that's a good analogy for me. So, Old Testament, in summary, its view on slavery. Old Testament, in a nutshell, David Guzik says this, the ideas of man-stealing and lifelong servitude, the concepts many have of slavery, simply do not apply to the practice of slavery in the Old Testament. Normally, slavery was 
chosen or mutually arranged, of limited duration, highly regulated. C.H. Spurgeon said this, speaking of Old Testament references to slavery. Moses did not institute slavery. The laws concerning it were made to repress it, confine it within very narrow bounds, and ultimately put it to an end. So at the time that Paul is writing, somewhere around 62-64 AD, in the first century, the Roman Empire was in full swing. When Paul was writing, historians estimate that the population of slaves was around 60 million, 60 million slaves throughout the Roman Empire. That's roughly half of the population. So for every person who was a owner, a farmer, he, the other half was working for him. Uh, as a result of that sheer fact, the leadership, uh, the Caesar and the Senate and so on, were a little bit concerned that the population had grown so vast that they started to regulate and say, okay, slaves, we want you to dress like everybody else to try to eliminate identification among the slaves. So if you just walk down any old street in the Roman Empire, you wouldn't be able to just tell a slave from someone else, not by the color of their skin or their clothes. All right? Perhaps it was just a national security issue, sort of like what happened with the Hebrews in Egypt back in their history. Right? Pharaoh got concerned that if we were attacked by an outside force, there's so many of them, they may ally with them, and we're in trouble. We're going to get eat, beaten from the inside out. So Augustus uh, actually put rules in place to regulate that. It is true that philosopher, Greek philosopher Aristotle famously said this, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Terrible. Most people know that quote. There are a lot of people that have studied it. What they don't often hear is that he later wrote in his politics, a slave is a kind of possession with a soul. So he came to a greater understanding, perhaps because of his interaction with human beings who were in the social strata of slave. It's also very true and famously known that Caesar Augustus crucified a slave for killing his pet quail. By the time Paul writes this letter, reforms had been made within the Roman Empire so that, generally speaking, a slave would eventually be set free. In fact, it's recorded that there, are, there were very few old slaves. They oftentimes would be released by the age of 30. Slave owners, in fact, were releasing slaves at such a rate that Augustus introduced legal restrictions to curb the trend. It didn't work. So does it condemn or condone? No, it doesn't. Why? Why doesn't Paul use his platform as an apostle and a preacher of the gospel to openly condemn something that is evil, as he did so many other things. Here's some of the reasonings. Christianity was already considered a problem. For example, Christians reject, rejected idol worship. You know that. In fact, Augustus and Nero and, and the succession of uh, Caesars demanded that they be regarded as divine and so I think there was a, a, a festival or a procession where once a year you had to offer a sacrifice and recognize Caesar as divine. A Christian is not going to do that. And it caused a great deal of suffering. So Christians were rejected because of, or they rejected, uh, sorry, they were rejected because of their idol, rejection of idol worship which was a form of patriotism and therefore reviewed as, or viewed as rebellion. Um, also, Christians re rejected cultural norms. All right, so I'm just trying to give a balance and an understanding and perhaps a reasoning why Paul doesn't outwardly condemn. 
something as horrific as owning another human. It's always wrong. Always wrong. And it's possible that he didn't do it because Christians rejected cultural norms. In other words, things that were just, it was normal life within the Roman Empire. Things like have sex with a prostitute of any gender. Things like orgies, open drunkenness, tax evasion, bribery. As people came to faith in Christ, his glory and his character began to cause a whole reform inside of them, and they began to view their world differently. And so, for that reason, Christianity was considered a problem. Kent Hughes said that an attack on slavery would have wrongly labeled Christianity as economically subversive and reduced many slaves and masters to poverty. Furthermore, the radical brotherhood and equality explicit in the gospel would be the death knell to slavery. Somebody has once said, wherever the gospel enters, you will eventually, and where there is also a coexistence with slavery, you will see eventually the extermination and the end of slavery. Now, I know having said that, that that's complicated because there are people in, this, in our history who actually use the scripture to justify slavery. Uh, but praise God, it did finally uh, be exterminated. So let me, that's my word about that subject, and I know that's not exhaustive, and I hope that that brings you some level of confidence in the Bible. Uh, we're just being honest about what it says, and I understand people like Sam Harris and others who are skeptical, and if it's caused doubts in your own heart and mind, then please, we'll talk more. But I think what we're, what we're seeing here at the time that Paul is writing is we're seeing a relationship between a slave and a master that was actually not far removed from the relationship between an employer and employee. Yes, there was ownership, but the relationship, again, was not as onerous and as vile as that in our own history, where that is just chattel property and I can do with you what I want. That was not the case because of reforms even from the Roman Empire and, uh, and because of the gospel, of course. All right, so I'm narrowing this down now so that we can see, uh, find rather, some application for ourselves. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul doesn't give a lot of detail. He actually sort of writes in general terms. <laughs> Slaves obey, masters give. Uh, okay, well, perhaps Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew that he was writing words that would endure until Jesus comes back, which hasn't happened yet. And so these words now have application and connection to us here in 21st century, because they're words, they're, they're principles that endure across time in the work and employer and employee relationship. So that's how we're going to approach this this morning. Okay, so again, just wanted to be briefly talk a little bit about slavery. Uh, and now to apply this for ourselves, um, hopefully we can see what the word is saying and applying to us uh, today. So slaves, uh, obey your masters. By the way, uh, you have your Bibles open. Um, by the way, a little plug for the written Word of God, not the digitized Word of God. Because <laughs> like, I can see chapter 4 at the same time I can see chapter 3, all on one page. Uh, hello. And, uh, and I'm only saying that because in chapter 4, verse 9, it says, uh, Paul mentions Onesimus. Onesimus. All right, pop quiz, anybody can answer. Who is Onesimus? Yes, Chimdi. Yes, exactly. He was a slave. And his master was Philemon or Philemon. Right. Thank you, Chimney. Right. Pretty cool, right? 
Isn't that interesting? So sitting in the church, as this pastor gets up to read Paul's letter, is Onesimus the slave and his slave owner Philemon. And it's possible they've already done business. <laughs> All right? That's where we'll actually go when we finish Colossians. Uh, we'll go to Philemon. It's just a quick little postcard that Paul put in the hand of the slave Onesimus and said, go take this back to your master. And I'd love to have been a fly in the wall that day that Philemon knocked on the door. You see, because he had done something where he ran away from his boss and he like, got the heck out of town. He ends up coming in contact with Paul, comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul puts a letter in his hands and now go back to your master. Can you imagine? Onesimus knocking on the door. Philemon opens the door. He's like, oh my God, there he is. He's like, read this. <laughs> Before you do anything, read it. <laughs> and it's from Philemon's dear friend, Paul. They live in Colossae. They're in, the, they're in the sanctuary on this morning. So whatever your job is, I'm just going to broadly speak to this being aware of who's in our sanctuary this morning. Whatever your job is, maybe you're a student and it's your, quote, work to accomplish what your teacher, <laughs> we have teachers in the room, what your teacher or professor, instructor, or TA is giving you. Right? That's your, quote, work. Uh, you're the boss. Maybe some of you here are a boss. And you're the one who gives the instructions. Paul will go on and he will say, whatever you do, verse 23, whatever you do, that is a very broad statement. And I know that it applies specifically to the worker, but I could also expand it and to say, whatever you're doing, workers, bosses, employees, or employers in any area of life, whether it's industry or law enforcement or military or not-for-profit, including a church that has a payroll. There's people who work, who have a boss. Arts and entertainment, agricultural, real estate, sports, go on and on and on and on and on. So in every area, in every type of work, from the mailroom to the boardroom, the classic <laughs> spectrum of responsibility, right? Paul is speaking to us today. Don't you love it? The glory of Jesus Christ at work. Yes, he actually cares about the fact, about the way you do your DoorDash delivery. <laughs> he actually cares. I'm just pounding a nail on this stupid piece of highly expensive plywood God actually cares about the way you're doing that right now. He actually cares about the attitude of your heart. That's most important to him. And who you're doing it for. And I'll just, I guess I'll just point out to you, because uh, it seems so evident to me, but verses 24, 25, knowing from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. <laughs> Right? You serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. There's no partiality. Right? So it's a big question in the employer's world. How do I motivate my people to do a good job, to stay committed to what they're doing and to get it done, right? How do you motivate your people? That's what I see, verses 24 and 25. What's the motivation? I know that I'm going to heaven. Paul says that, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive a proper wage, a reward, a recompense for the things that you've done here in your work life. And just the everyday, go to class, go home, am I going to binge on something stupid? Or am I going to actually do what I'm supposed to do to get it done at the time of the deadline? Or am I going to call and ask for a little grace? Oh, I missed the deadline. That's so hard, I can't do it, liar. You binged on Netflix. You wasted your time, you didn't get your assignment done. 
Look, I'm not railing on you. I'm a man, just like you, that is prone to all kinds of temptations and laziness. And sometimes I'm cramming. Like, if I'm on a Saturday night and I'm having Saturday night fever because I know I got a sermon on Sunday morning because I really haven't marinated in the Word and prepped and prayed and thought and done all the things that's necessary, it's too late. It's too late. And you'll always know when I've done that because I just start telling stories. Because <laughs> I don't know what the Word says like I should. So... <laughs> What's the motivation? Knowing that from the Lord. How do they know this? My brothers and sisters, let me just preach that to you. How do they know that they have an inheritance from the Lord that is motivating them to work in spite of who my boss is? How do they know that? They know it because of the power of the Holy Spirit who has come into them at the moment of their conversion. That Jesus is alive. My Savior was my slave. He took his life and gave it up entirely. And died on a cross. And got what I didn't deserve. And when I came and I heard this gospel. And I believed in Christ. Repented of my sin. He flooded my life with his love. And now I know, I, I know him. I have a personal relationship with him. And I speak with him daily and he speaks to me and he anoints my head with oil and he comforts me with his rod and his staff and he tells me I am his. And it exceeds, you see, it goes beyond what's going on down here in the, in the school or in the work world. I have a savior. That's how they know it. That's how they know it. They know it through adoption. The Holy Spirit has said, I'm your, you're my son, and you, Father, are my God. The spirit of adoption speaks to my spirit, and he tells me I'm his. Oh, you may own me. Guess what? I'm bought with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ. He owns me, and I've yielded my life to him. I think some of the most beautiful words that were ever spoken in the Bible came from that teenager, Mary, when Gabriel announced that she was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. What was her response? I am a female slave of the Lord. I entirely surrender my life to you. Oh my goodness, what an amazing word from a young woman who had many dreams of her married life and family. She didn't know the outcome. She had no idea what her fiancé with Joseph was going to, how he would respond to this, how her own family would respond to this. It was going to be the scandal of the ages. And believe me, it went public because the Pharisees used it against Jesus. And John, we know where you came from. You are a bastard child. Mary, Lord, I am yours. That's how they knew this. And that was their motivation. Is that your motivation? Yes, it is. Deep in your heart, it is your motivation. Because the Holy Spirit has poured God's love into your heart. And I know how much he loves me. And that I'm actually working for him. In all that I do, I will never forget my dad, who's in heaven now. Joni and I had just dramatically become Christians. It was, everybody knew. And very shortly thereafter, I'll never forget, my dad's out at the grill and he's cooking some hamburgers. And uh, we had traveled down from Rochester just to see my parents and the family. And, and uh, at the time, I was just simply driving a delivery truck with a bunch of wood on the back of it. It was entry level, unskilled labor, right? And dad's like, how's the job going? I'm like, I'm driving for Jesus, dad. And he kind of looked at me. <laughs> he wasn't a Christian yet. It was just what came out of my mouth. It was like, I, I love him. Yeah, I got a guy who writes a check and I get paid. And that's good. 
pays the bills, but that's not really who I'm working for. So, wow, this sermon's going to have to get cut short a little bit. Slaves obey in all things, Paul says in verse 22. Obey in all things, your masters. Dude, how can you say that? Isn't that interesting? Paul does not qualify that the master is a Christian or not. And so you're just a slave in the sanctuary on that morning, and the word of God comes to you and says, obey your master. Maybe your master, maybe your boss is a jerk. You know, Jacob famously in the Old Testament he had a boss named Laban who changed his wages 10 times. <laughs> That's what Jacob's like. He's like, bro, you can't even be trusted. We made this arrangement. I was going to marry your daughter, Rachel, and then you slipped in Leah. Besides, like, you're just, you're a terrible man. <laughs> He's like, you changed my wages 10 times. So, I mean, reality is bosses can be difficult. Let's just say that. Very difficult can make your life difficult. Sometimes if they get power hungry, they know that. And they'll use their power to make your life difficult. So come on, Paul. Obey in all things? I mean, he says it without qualification. Obey your all things, your masters, according to the flesh. I guess that's the only qualification. It sort of implies that these are your earthly masters. you got a higher master So any master sitting in the church, hearing these words, what's he thinking? He could easily start scheming, right? Y'all seen the movie Harriet? Like the story of Harriet Tubman? It's a great movie. I think one of the early opening scenes is uh, the slave pastor standing on the steps of the slave owner preaching Colossians 3.22. To the slaves on the slave owner's plantation. And the slave owner sitting on the rocking chair with his wife and his evil son. <laughs> Any slave sitting in church hearing these words, oh, may your masters in all things, they've got to be looking over at their employer, if he's in the room, going, wonder what he's thinking right now. <laughs> so here's what I think. I think that on one hand, Paul is just making a general statement reflecting the attitude of the Christian worker. Let me say that again. I think he's making a general statement. He's, he's establishing a principle for a worker who's a Christian. And this can be true whether you're the boss or the not. But he's like, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, is what he would say in other verses. He's reflecting the attitude of the Christian worker. On one hand, the great equalizer of the gospel is on full display. It's on full display. I'm willing to submit to you the one who owns me because we're the same. Paul said that in Colossians 3.11. I won't, for the sake of time, read that to you, but he said it. There's in, in Christ... There is not a slave or a, or a free man. We're all the same. The gospel is the great equalizer. On the other hand, if your boss or your employer is not a good guy and he's not a Christian, what a powerful witness. And I'm going to wax a little bit on this. Okay? What a powerful witness you are to the one who is watching you. What a powerful witness. You know, one of the great examples, just in brief, is Ruth. You know the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, right? Boaz, the landowner, comes into his field, and he immediately talks to his middle management, the foreman, and he's like, okay, how's it going out here today in the harvesting of the barley? And the foreman's like, really well. I just want to point out to you, boss, there's a woman over there by the name of Ruth. She is a hardworking, diligent woman. And this is what she's doing on a consistent basis. 
She's showing up here faithfully, morning to night. What a great example she was. And by the way, Ruth had come to faith prior to that going to work for Boaz. So she was actually living it out right in front of him. They got married. <laughs> Good ending to that story. I'm not saying marry your boss. I'm just saying. <laughs> just be a good witness. That's all I'm saying. Right? Obey. Obey in all things. I think obey indicates reliability and faithfulness. That means you actually come to work when you're supposed to. Now you're going, maybe some of you are not connecting with this. It's a big problem today. It is a major problem. Like, you're aware, right? Chick-fil-A shut down in-house dining. They don't have enough people to staff the place. They don't want to work. Jeez. I know firsthand there's a great organization that really struggles to stay staffed because people quit, they don't like their boss, they don't like the work, or they don't show up. Show up on time and do what you're told. You will be amazed how different that makes you from the average employer, employee, excuse me. They obey. It's a general attitude. They come to work, and they're ready to go. And they're faithful. They do what they're told. They're not made motivated by a future paycheck. They're not looking to just increase a reputation or be recognized or so on. They're just like, this is what I need to do today as defined by my employer. And they do it. Um... Let me just point out to you a couple other verses, other things here that Paul would say to us, speaking generally and in principle, obey. In other words, be faithful and be reliable. That's my word to you people today, to myself. Like, right? Maybe you're self-employed. Who are you accountable to? God, right? Or I have customers, they're expecting this work to get done. Am I doing the best I can so that I'm meeting their standards and coming to their project at the time when I'm supposed to be. Things happen. I understand that. But let it not be because I was lazy. Okay? He says, not with eye service as men pleasers. Eye service is an interesting word. It means uh, literally to work best while I'm being watched. Anybody that's ever tried out for a sports team, <laughs> like, I, like, I'm guilty, Right? Uh, played football in high school, right? And like leg lifts, I hated leg lifts, right? Because it's like really strengthening the core and it hurt. So uh, I'm doing leg lifts. I'm also doing neck lifts. I'm lifting my head up to see where the coach is. When he's not watching, the legs went down. <laughs> Didn't help me a bit. <laughs> I was cheating, right? Don't do that. Don't just work hard when you're being watched. It also has the idea of only doing the work that you know is going to be seen. Like you could clean the room here, but I'll just put it under the carpet. He'll never see that. <laughs> right? Not with eye service, but with sincerity, Paul says. Not with hypocrisy. The driving influence there is, as I already said, it's not promotion or reputation. I'm not selfishly motivated. Man, I'm talking about an amazing workforce right now. <laughs> Amen? Uh, verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Uh, whatever you do. It replies to any role, any responsibility. Heartily means willingly, voluntarily. Uh, maybe even take a little bit of initiative. Um, question that might come up in your mind, is there no place for a labor union? Um, there can be. It can be a good structure to improve wages, benefits, and working conditions. But it doesn't change anything that's already been said. 
even if you sign on and the union gets organized, you're going to work with the same attitude whether you have a union or not. So just to say that to you, um, Paul doesn't have as much to say to the masters in chapter 4, verse 1, which I think probably ought to just be chapter 3, verse 26, but okay. Uh, masters, give your slaves or treat or deal with your slaves what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So there's always accountability, right? It always goes up to Jesus, who's the king and the savior and the ruler of all. Um, let me just say to you that uh, Peter speaks a little bit more realistically um, or maybe practically. Uh, just cue that up, uh, guys, if you would. A verse here from 1 Peter 2. Uh, Peter says this, uh, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for your, you endure it, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's a powerful verse. That, that brings a powerful witness. When your boss is beating on you, changing your wages, doing unfair labor practices, and you're coming to work obeying, obedient, reliable, faithful, joyfully, willfully, heartily from the Lord. And they're like, dude, what is up with you? You really want to know, sir. I've had the chance multiple times to witness to my bosses when I was in the secular world. I went from driving a truck to some level of management. Whoopee, right? But at some point, I had to go into the office and talk to my bosses about a number of things. Clearly had the chance to talk to them about Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful opportunity that God provided through the work that he had done by his spirit in me. So let me just also say to you, don't run, okay? If, if your job sucks <laughs> or you don't like the course that you're taking because the, the professor's a whatever, right? Don't be so quick to say, I'm going to drop it, I'm going to quit, I'm going to get another job. Peter or Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond slave or a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He goes, don't be so quick to just leave the situation that you find yourself in as a Christian. God wants to use you and cause you to blossom right there where you're planted. There's a higher calling, brothers and sisters. I feel like I could talk about this a lot more. I personally just sort of love the marketplace. I love how business operates, and it turns me on. And I've been on the side of being the hiring, firing guy, to the guy that got hired. Praise the Lord, never got fired. And I can tell you, it's, a, it's fun. And it, it really is. And when you find those, those young men or older men or women who are actually just are willing to work for God's glory, it's like, promote that brother or sister. They seem to have a, a, a sense of responsibility about them that is really valuable in today's world. So that's a brief word today. The glory of Jesus Christ at work. <laughs> uh, so Beck, come on up and we'll prepare to take communion this morning. As I said, um, I really just want this, this, this moment to be your moment with God. Your moment with God, with Jesus. So you can stand if you want. We'll turn the lights off and put the lyrics on the screen. It's, it's up to you. I just mostly just want to encourage you. I just want to lift up Jesus to you.
And I want to do that by reminding you of a very powerful scene in John's Gospel, where it's uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Remember? Now, it's interesting. What he does there, we'll talk about in a moment, but um, it's also interesting in the context of servants and slaves and masters and all, because there was apparently no servant in the room to do the entry-level, unskilled task of washing the feet of those in the room. Nobody was there to do that. So they all come in and they recline and begin to eat dinner together, and they're all sitting there having not really done what they should have done, had their feet washed. None of the disciples would take on that responsibility. I'm just broadly speaking, it was interesting that these lowly men <laughs> apparently didn't think of themselves in reality to go, I think I probably should wash the Lord's feet, don't you think? They didn't want to humble themselves to that position. The only one in the room that was willing was who? Jesus Christ. Took his coat off, tied a towel around his waist, and washed their feet. And I totally get why Peter would say, what are you doing? He says, you don't understand now. But really, Peter, what I'm doing is I'm giving you an example. This is not about dirt off your feet. This is about forgiveness of your sin. That's what this is exampling for you. And because you're such knuckleheads, <laughs> I'll do it in such a simple, practical way that maybe you'll remember that when you leave this room and you start arguing among yourselves and swearing at each other because you each are trying to get greater than the other, and once I've died and resurrected and I've poured my spirit into you, you'll remember. My king made himself a slave. And he took upon him all the evil that is inside of us. And furthermore, and much more importantly, he accepted God's judgment that we deserved. He took it for us. Substitutionary atonement. Rose for our justification and promises you an inheritance. Come boldly to the throne of grace, brothers and sisters. If you are not a Christian, your sin has separated you from God. I can tell you on the authority of God's word and knowing my Savior, heaven does not await you, but rather a judgment that will keep you separated for eternity. Eternal life is offered to you today, right now. Confess your sin, ask Jesus to forgive you, apply your blood to my situation. Wash me, make me yours. I yield. Behold, the slave of the Lord. If you're a Christian today, and you feel like you're so unworthy because of the things you've said or thought or done, don't hold back. Because Jesus made a very strong point on that foot-washing ceremony, if you will. He said, once you are completely bathed, you have no need to be born again, 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 again. You have no need for a full immersion anymore. You just simply need to, by faith, claim your sin, bring it to the cross, and I'll wash that. Justified and sanctified and sanctifying. So without any further ado, just this is your time. We're going to sing. If you want to sing, 
If you want to pray, you want to confess to the Lord and ask him to be your savior, please, today's the day of salvation. Don't leave without letting me know that, though. I want to talk to you and disciple you and love you and give you a Bible or whatever is necessary to encourage you in your faith. And I think I'll just, we'll just close with this time together, right? And um, I don't know if the Spirit will lead me to say any more afterwards or not. If not, and you want to talk, please, you need prayer. Again, Andrew, my son Andy, and the fellowship hall, myself. There's other believers here. Uh, we, we love you, want to pray for you, encourage you. Maybe we should go through the exercise of peeling this thing away so it's um, a little less uh, noisy and cumbersome and we'll be prepared. But uh, let's hit the lights and back if you would. <laughs>